In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 19, Gary Hart, the Colorado senator who sought the presidential nomination twice, only for his 1988 bid to smash to a halt with allegations of infidelity. Please keep your mind open to the possibility that I'm not weird. In early spring of 1987, Gary Hart slid these words across the table like a breakfast plate to the New York Times's E.J. Dion. The reporter was writing an upcoming profile for the Times magazine. The Colorado senator's words seemed to convey that he could be candid and relatable, qualities fit for a future president. That perhaps on his last run, there were whispers of indiscretion, but that now he'd grown up. He was ready to lead the nation. Unfortunately for Hart, by the time Dion's piece on the elusive frontrunner ran on May 3, 1987, his promises were proven wrong. Just hours after it hit the newsstands, a dirge of revelations would come by way of the Miami Herald. The senator had been unfaithful, and there were photos to prove it. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. Today, we're diving into the curious unraveling of former Colorado Senator Gary Hart. While he campaigned for the Democratic nomination for the presidency in both 1984 and 1988, his second quest for the White House was dismantled well before the July convention. In the wake of one saga that unfolded in the spring of 1987, the monkey business incident, Hart would drop out of the race. Hart's reputation, namely his inability to keep his hands to himself, proved to be the most damaging, recurring theme throughout his career. Ahead of the 1988 presidential election, the Democratic National Committee was jonesing for fresh blood, a candidate who would get people out to vote. Though the Democrats fought tooth and nail to regain control of the Senate majority in 1986, they still faced President Ronald Reagan's conservative White House they would need a ringer to clinch the 88 election. Initially, it seemed like New York Governor Mario Cuomo might be a good fit. When he declined to run, though, the field narrowed to three men, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, civil rights activist Jesse Jackson, and Senator Gary Hart. Of the three, Hart had the most shine about him. He had been serving the great state of Colorado as senator for over 12 years, and he checked all the boxes of a centrist Democrat. He quickly took center stage. As the Miami Herald put it, Hart was, quote, the front runner with everything in his favor. Polls showed him not only winning the Democratic nomination, but handily beating George Bush, the GOP's early favorite in a theoretical matchup. With a little luck, Hart was shaping up to be exactly what the DNC needed, their 1988 JFK. Gary Warren Hart 
was a byproduct of Ottawa, Kansas, born in 1936. Unlike many of his fellow good old boys, though, in his youth, Gary was clean-cut to a fault. This was sometimes perceived as haughtiness. One childhood acquaintance remembered the Hart children with scorn, saying they thought they were fancier people. But perhaps they were just out of step with their peers. Their family belonged to an evangelical church with decidedly strict rules. Movies and the radio were forbidden. Only later in Hart's life did people tie his rapt interest in Hollywood to the fact that growing up, he wasn't actually allowed to watch films. Such a fundamentalist childhood sowed complicated desires into Hart's personal fabric. As a 1987 Vanity Fair tome on Hart reminded readers, people raised in such strict fundamentalist families never experienced the turbulence common to normal adolescence. And since the stage of rebellion and identity formation is not allowed, breakaways like Hart often behave for years like belated teenagers. Years. That's how long it would take for Hart's more body behaviors to start eking out. But in 1954, Hart was simply a kid bound for the quads of Southern Nazarene University. He intended to study for the ministry at a small private Oklahoma college. There, Hart began exploring philosophy and dipping his toe into politics, weaving Plato and Kierkegaard into his papers and discovering that he had distinctly democratic leanings. These new politics made the college an uncomfortable place. Once again, Hart didn't fit in with his peers. Evangelical clergy people from the South were almost always Republicans. Hart couldn't deny, though, college had at least one thing going for it. Women. One particular lady, Olitha Ludwig, had caught Hart's eye. Though Hart admitted Olitha, Lee for short, was out of his league, he didn't give up. She was charmed, and the two married soon after graduation. And then promptly got out of Oklahoma. In 1958, Hart enrolled at Yale University's Divinity School, hoping for a Christian community that favored his liberal leanings. Once settled in Connecticut, Hart was positioned in a front-row seat for the show of the decade, John F. Kennedy's 1960 presidential campaign. The enthusiasm of the campaign ignited something within Hart, a spark that would stay alight for decades. Maybe it was passion, or maybe it was the glamour of a politician the nation deemed sexy. Either way, Hart even pitched in as a volunteer. Experiencing a campaign up close didn't just influence Hart, it changed his entire career path. After finishing his divinity degree at Yale in 1961, rather than looking for work as a minister, Hart stayed in New Haven and enrolled in law school. From there, Hart moved to D.C., to cut his teeth as a Department of Justice attorney. But D.C. was a big pond for a small fish like Hart. So in 1967, he and Lee packed their bags for Colorado. The Western state was a haven for progressive politics, and Hart hoped it would be a better environment for developing his political career. His first step was to start practicing law out of a basement office. But that wasn't the end goal. In 1970, Hart joined the George McGovern 1972 presidential campaign. He left Lee and the kids behind for the trail, ready to make a name for himself. 
Campaigning, oddly, brought Hart into his first real taste of Hollywood. Actor Warren Beatty was offering his fame pro bono to endorse the McGovern campaign, and Hart was starstruck. He was now a part of the glossy scene that had been forbidden throughout his youth and teenage years. However, all the endorsements in Tinseltown couldn't save McGovern. Even after Hart signed on as his campaign manager, the road ahead was too doomed to navigate. In the 1972 election, McGovern failed to even carry his own home state of South Dakota against incumbent Richard Nixon. As Vanity Fair put it, the fallout for Hart was bleak. He'd made a name for himself, all right, but certainly not how he'd hoped. Gary had nothing, no career, no money, no future. He was then the architect of the world's worst political campaign. He and his wife, Lee, took a brief vacation to Jamaica with friends. And maybe it was something about the beachy Caribbean waves that relit the fire in heart. Upon returning to Colorado, he was determined to redeem himself by running for the Senate. His determination paid off. In 1974, just two years later, Hart was elected senator for the state of Colorado. Gaining the esteemed position made Hart feel he was a sophisticated, modern politician, the kind who could schmooze in Los Angeles on a Saturday and be on Capitol Hill by Monday morning. He quickly turned that feeling into reality, continuing to hobnob Warren Beatty's crowd, which of course included dozens of young, beautiful socialites. This change in Hart's behavior caused strain. His wife, Lee, who was a stay-at-home mother raising their two children, felt suspicious of what was going on with that fast crowd. Like everyone, she knew that sex, drugs, and rock and roll were woven into the fabric of Hollywood. In light of this, Hart did not champion his celebrity ties in 1983, when after nine years as senator, he decided to run for president. In fact, his approach was the opposite. He was an everyman, quick to point out his lack of material wealth. One of his go-to quips that year was how he was the most broke candidate. But this attempt at a grounded persona wasn't as seamless as he'd hoped. As the campaign took shape, Hart was doing a poor job of selling himself as a family man. Apparently, at campaign rallies, he blew past introducing Lee more than a few times. Lee, meanwhile, played the role of the good, quiet wife, despite Hart's failure to play the good husband. Vanity Fair speculated that this may have had to do with her own ambitions. Lee appeared to want the White House as much as Gary did. That would explain why she was willing to be humiliated in private and ignored in public. With the potential of becoming first lady within reach, Lee quietly ignored the more grievous parts of the trail including Hart's debaucherous A-team. One former staffer referred to the campaign staff Hart hired as scumbags, jackals, and freebooters. According to political lore, a campaign reflects its candidate, and Hart's 84 bid was, quote, maximum chaos. But for all its rough edges, the Hart campaign was drawing attention. According to the New York Times, Hart nearly took the Democratic nomination away from Walter F. Mondale, the man whom all the smart folks said could not be touched in his party. Nearly was the key word. 
Before the primaries, allegations of the senator's infidelity came crawling out of the woodwork. That spring, reporters eagerly dug into the past, all the way back to Hart's time managing the McGovern campaign. They found landmines. One source said Hart slept with numerous college women who worked as volunteers for McGovern's bid. Another concerning allegation followed. Allegedly, while on the campaign trail in early 1984, Hart invited a female reporter to conduct a news interview from his hotel room, wearing only a short bathrobe. These unsavory tales, paired alongside the rumors of Hart's strained marriage, Newspapers reported that he and Lee had separated briefly both in 1979 and 1982, became sore spots on the campaign. And they certainly didn't help Hart rally voters following the caucuses. But it was a televised debate against Jimmy Carter's former vice president, Walter Mondale, that would wound his campaign beyond repair. In response to Hart's lofty, somewhat vague promises on furthering equality and economic prosperity, Mondale jabbed, where's the beef? The question, at its heyday as the Wendy's Burger slogan, insinuated that the meat of Hart's ideas was missing. Mondale poked a blatant hole in Hart's inability to lay out a clear plan for his presidency. Consequently, Walter Mondale became the Democratic nominee only to face a crushing defeat in November of 1984 to GOP favorite Ronald Reagan. Meanwhile, Gary Hart stepped into the background, quietly plotting for a glorious comeback just three years later. Up next, Gary Hart creates a promising platform for 1987, only for it to crumble with one sail aboard a Miami yacht. Now back to the story. Colorado Senator Gary Hart had just celebrated his big 5-0 birthday when in April of 1987, he tossed his hat into the presidential ring once more. He announced his candidacy in Denver, assuring his supporters he could win the 88 election with the help of God, of course. Those fundamentalist tinges still found their way into his speeches. But namely, Hart promised he'd be the people's champion over greed making sure social justice was the priority. He wouldn't let the future pass America by. Solemnly, Hart promised his supporters that he would be their compass of reason and honor in order to preserve the nation's ethics. More than anything, though, he wanted to be a fresh face for the party. No more stuffy New Deal governing, which had largely been the shape of Walter Mondale's 84 platform. According to Hart, Compassion didn't mean bureaucracy. Amongst his ideas were curbing military spending and fortifying domestic budgets, particularly education. It was the exact type of specificity his 84 campaign lacked. With three years to whip his ideas into shape, Gary Hart had finally shown up with a platter, as if to say, here's the beef. But while Hart had reinforced himself as a candidate in this regard, other seams would fray quickly following his April announcement. One breaking story would prove bigger than all the rest. It would unravel Gary Hart. In hindsight, the Miami Herald would call it one of the fastest, most shocking unravelings of a presidential campaign in American history. But who pulled the fateful thread then? 
Some would say it was a model named Donna Rice. Some would say it was her friend, Lynn Armand. Hell, some would even argue it was political consultant, Lee Atwater. But you can decide for yourself once you know what took place aboard the monkey business. Donna Rice was a young woman originally from South Carolina. By 1983, she'd moved to Miami, or plantation rather, a nearby suburb. Rice hoped to model and act, but neither took off. Her agent, Peggy McKinley, put it bluntly. By 1987, Rice's career was pretty much flat. Despite this, Donna made plenty of friends, which soon brought her into Miami's Turnberry Isle scene, a bizarre sprawl of condo complexes that included a yacht club, spa, and nightclub. Donna was particularly close with one woman named Lynn Armand, who owned the Two Hot Bikini Boutique within the complex. Naturally, no one went to Turnberry Isle looking for moral guidance and family values. It was a mixture of models, millionaires, movie stars, and of course, Donna Rice. She became a regular aboard the yacht of Donald Soffer, Turnberry's founder and real estate developer. Thus, the stage was set for a fateful sale on the monkey business. In March of 1987, Gary Hart was hitting the high seas. After campaigning in South Florida, he stuck around Miami, keeping the good times going. Most notably, with D.C. fixer, lawyer, and lobbyist, Billy Broadhurst. Mr. Fix-It, as he was known, loved politicians who flew close to the sun. With funding secured in part due to his position at his law firm, Broadhurst had opted to use Donald Soffer's yacht, Monkey Business, for a little soiree and sail to the Caribbean. And who should Senator Hart encounter aboard the boat but Donna Rice? It wasn't their first meet-cute. In fact, Rice had rubbed elbows with the senator on New Year's Eve 1986. The two had been amongst those at a party at Don Henley's Aspen home, another perk of that Hollywood hobnobbing. There likely wasn't much beyond pleasantries over the Eagles, though. Hart's wife, Lee, was with him in Aspen. Miami was the opposite. Lee was absent, and the yacht was filled with wild young socialites. As one party-goer told the Miami Herald, they weren't the kind of people you would think a presidential candidate would want to be around. Still, two people clearly wanted to be around each other, Hart and Rice. After the yacht soiree that evening, Hart asked for Rice's number, which proved helpful the very next day. The senator invited her to come on a quick overnight charter to the Bahamian island of Bimini, a little over 50 miles south of Miami. Rice agreed, and her friend Lynn Armand tagged along as well. When the boat docked in Bimini, Armand pulled out her camera and snapped a photo. Donna Rice in her sailing whites, sitting in the lap of Gary Hart. They smiled, cheeks nearly touching. Hart's crisp white t-shirt read simply, Monkey Business Crew. Armand kept the picture. On Monday night, May 4th, about a month after the Miami yacht shindig, and only a few weeks after Hart's campaign announcement, an anonymous caller phoned the Miami Herald's tip line. The caller was connected with one of the paper's seasoned political reporters, Tom Fiedler. This anonymous caller told Fiedler she knew a secret about Gary Hart 
and hinted she had juicy details to back it up. Quick note, though Tom Fiedler to this day has not confirmed who the caller was, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported it has reason to believe it was a woman named Dana Weems, a Miami clothing designer who was friendly with Rice and Lynn Armand. Fiedler had little interest in chasing the caller's illusions. He was used to fake tips meant to sling mud. He told her that if what she said was true, she should call back in the morning. If the information she gave could be corroborated for a story, her identity would remain anonymous. Tom Fiedler wasn't hopeful for a call back. So when it did come the next morning, he couldn't deny this might be something big especially after the caller provided some more details about Hart's alleged secret. One of her friends was having an affair with Gary Hart, and that she could prove it with photos. Still, Fiedler was hesitant. Trying to connect a politician romantically to a random stranger through photos was risky. But the caller pressed on, adding that Hart and her friend were still communicating. She even listed several dates when Hart and her friend allegedly had phone calls and the cities those calls had come from. Then she left Fiedler with one last bombshell. Hart and her friend were planning to rendezvous in Washington, D.C. that weekend. This was the breadcrumb that finally caused Fiedler to bite. This tip felt legitimate and had enough detail to follow up on. So he verified what details he could cross-checking the cities the caller mentioned with Hart's campaign stops. They aligned like jigsaw pieces. By Friday afternoon, May 1st, after one last confirmation that Hart had, in fact, canceled an upcoming campaign stop in Kentucky to spend the next weekend in D.C., Fiedler flew into action. He dispatched one of the Herald's investigative reporters, Jim McGee, to Miami International Airport. From there, McGee was to board a flight to D.C.'s Washington National. The evening flight was one of two that matched the tipster's guess for when her friend would fly to meet Hart in Washington. Once aboard the plane, McGee spotted a young woman who matched the description of Donna Rice, sleek blonde hair and a decidedly Southern drawl. Upon landing in D.C., McGee lost the woman as she left the airport. However, he had obtained the address for Hart's D.C. townhome. Before heading to it, he dialed up an old Herald contact, now stationed at another bureau in Washington, Douglas Clifton. McGee gave Clifton the rundown, and Clifton agreed to join him in keeping watch. The wheels were in motion before Clifton even made it to the stakeout. Less than two hours after his plane landed, outside Senator Hart's townhome, McGee watched as the same blonde from his flight emerged from the front door with Gary Hart himself. The pair disappeared together. Shocked, McGee immediately called his editor at the Herald. He needed backup. He and Clifton would need another reporter, if not two, and certainly a photographer to substantiate what he was seeing. But it was nearly 10 p.m. in D.C., A flight from Miami to Washington would have to wait until morning. McGee stayed put, and not long after, before 11.30, both Hart and the blonde returned to the townhome and went inside. Clifton arrived soon after and took a position behind the house, keeping an eye on the back. He and McGee kept watch that night and through the morning. The reporters didn't see anyone leave. 
The E.J. Dion piece for the New York Times, in which Gary Hart insisted he wasn't weird, held another poetic gem that would epitomize the morning of May 2nd, 1987. Hart said, quote, Follow me around. I don't care. I'm serious. If anybody wants to put a tail on me, go ahead. They'd be very bored. By that morning, the Miami Herald had sent three more reporters to D.C. Investigations editor James Savage, photographer Brian Smith, and reporter Tom Fiedler. They watched the townhome throughout the day. And though it would take until nearly 9 p.m., that night, Jim McGee saw the blonde woman again. She and Hart were leaving the townhome, seemingly headed to Hart's car. They stopped, though, suspiciously looking around before quickly retreating back inside. When Hart reemerged alone, the three Herald reporters would confront the senator himself, and then they'd publish their findings. Coming up, Hart's monkey business comes back to haunt him. Now back to the story. On Saturday, May 2nd, 1987, no less than three reporters and one newspaper photographer were outside the Washington, D.C. townhome of Senator Gary Hart. They'd followed an anonymous tip that a woman, a rumored mistress, was visiting him that weekend, and so far, they'd seen the blonde at the townhome with Hart himself. By late Saturday evening, two of the Herald reporters poised themselves to talk with Hart outside his home after he attempted to leave unseen with his female companion. The reporters were blunt. They told Hart that they had been watching the house and that they knew there was a woman inside. While Hart was initially cagey with them, claiming he was set up, the conversation quickly pivoted. Rather than deny the situation, Hart insisted that the woman inside was simply visiting Washington and that he had planned to drive her back to her lodging that evening. When the reporters pressed for who she was, Hart said, quote, She is a friend of a friend of mine. Then he added quickly, a guest of a friend of mine. What was the nature of their relationship or how they'd met? The reporters brought up Miami and the monkey business trip. Hart squirmed, refusing to admit that he was on the yacht, but also refusing to deny it. Seeing they were at somewhat of a stalemate, reporter Tom Fiedler decided it was time to head out. He left Hart with two considerations. The first was that the senator had proclaimed just weeks before that he intended to be someone who could model ethics for the nation. And second, the Miami Herald intended to publish a story on what the reporters had witnessed and discussed with Hart that night. Hart responded by denying their final request to speak to the woman inside to corroborate the senator's version of events. Instead, according to the Herald, he swiftly turned on his heel and walked away. His footsteps back into the townhome were nearly synchronized with the Herald's reporter snapping photographs. The team of Herald reporters would spend that night on the phone working in tandem with their executive editor, Heath Merriweather, to draft an account of what they'd witnessed over the past 24 hours. They were gunning to make the Herald's Sunday publication cut off just hours away. In the midst of all this pressure, a man claiming to be Bill Broadhurst called reporter James Savage. Broadhurst was adamant, insistent even, that the blonde woman was his guest and that Hart wasn't guilty of anything they might be thinking of insinuating. 
Still, by the early morning hours, the Herald had a story it felt had truthfully outlined the situation, even including Broadhurst's intervention. With the final confirmation from Merriweather, it was greenlit to run that morning. The Sunday, May 3rd expose in the Miami Herald didn't name Hart's blonde companion as Donna Rice. A trove of articles exploded in its wake, naming her and starting to connect the dots. By Tuesday, May 5th, Hart stepped before the American Newspapers Publishers Association in New York to make a statement. He denied the allegations vehemently. He told another group at a different event that evening, those who would test my character are in for a surprise. I may bend, but I do not break. The next move was on to Littleton, New Hampshire, a pre-scheduled campaign stop that held a garbage fire of a press conference waiting in the wings. Perhaps knowing how quickly the situation was unraveling, Lee Hart flew from Denver to New Hampshire to join her husband. Having his wife by his side did little to stop the litany of questions waiting for Hart. In fact, Lee had to reprise her role as the solemn and loyal spouse, watching on as reporters went for the jugular. Hart was asked question after question about his relationship with Donna Rice. But Wednesday hadn't hit rock bottom yet. That didn't come until the late hours that night when Hart's press secretary, Kevin Sweeney, received a message from the Washington Post. One of its reporters had information, new information. Sweeney had steeled himself for yet another juicy tidbit on Donna Rice. But the Post continued on that this lead was about a liaison with a woman living in Washington, someone entirely different than Donna Rice. Sweeney's stomach sank. The Post, by way of a private investigator, had confirmed an itinerary involving this mystery woman and Gary Hart. Their rendezvous allegedly ran from Saturday, December 20th through Sunday, December 21st, 1986. Why was a private detective following Hart before he even announced his candidacy, you might ask? As reported by The Times, another senator was worried his wife was being unfaithful with Gary Hart. And if Hart's press secretary had any hope of sleeping that night, one more detail from the Post quashed it. The paper had a photo of Senator Hart at this unnamed Washington woman's house. Thursday, May 7th, held more doom. Hart skipped a scheduled stop at a New Hampshire factory, much to the disappointment of the press awaiting him. It seemed that he had finally read the writing on the wall. According to the Washington Post, By the end of the week, Hart could see his poll numbers sinking, his financial resources in danger of drying up, his closest political supporters unwilling to speak up for him, and his campaign aides concluding from telephone calls around the country that the campaign was in a freefall. By Friday, May 8th, from the safety of his own Denver stomping grounds, Gary Hart delivered his campaign withdrawal address. While he gave a disclaimer at its beginning that he had planned to keep it short and sweet, the senator's fiery spirit took over when he considered whether or not this was the end of his career. He proclaimed, Hell no. I'm a proud man, and I'm proud of what I've accomplished. The speech continued on, covering a swath of issues, from how angry his children were to the fact that Hart had never been good at playing the political game. 
Notably, he did not take any responsibility for his evenings with Donna Rice, nor the allegations about the other Washington woman. The closest he came was his comment that he'd made some big mistakes, but not bad mistakes. He reminded those listening that he loved his country and that he hoped young people would continue to pursue politics. He ended with one last jab, proclaiming, I believe I would have been a successful candidate, and I know I could have been a very good president, particularly for these times. But apparently, now we'll never know. As Rolling Stone reported in its profile of Hart, titled Campaignus Interruptus, the months from Hart renouncing his candidacy to the 1988 general election were inauspicious for the fallen Bronco. He called them the worst period of my life. Worst period of my life. Worst period of my life. Hart was known for repeating things, as if the emphasis would solidify the words. The media came after Hart and his family with a vengeance. According to the New York Times, the hounding was so extreme in the early months that the family pinned bedsheets over the windows. The few voices of support, like Hart's sister Nancy Lee, didn't help the situation. As she told Vanity Fair in 1987, why would Gary give up something like Lee for that lowlife? After a spring and summer of hiding, tears, and shame, it seemed like the best way for Gary Hart to close out 1987 would be a quiet holiday season with his family. That option proved too tame. On December 15, 1987, the Colorado senator was back in the headlines. He was rejoining the primary race. His campaign for president was back on. America was stunned. Just seven months had passed since the worst week of Hart's life. And while the senator was sure this re-entry would prove successful, his fellow Democrats certainly didn't agree. Said Massachusetts Senator Barney Frank, this is the worst new idea of 1987. Frank was right. Hart dropped out again just three months later in March of 1988. His path back to glory, which some likened to a Rocky movie, had failed. On March 11, 1988, he gave his second speech within a year, again from Denver, telling supporters the campaign was over. He cited that it was the right course of action after having failed to win any delegates so far. Offsetting this second withdrawal with a little gallows humor, Hart noted at least, nobody's peeking in our windows anymore. He claimed he looked forward to working on a book and returning to private law practice in Colorado. In 1988, the future for Hart didn't seem all that bad. These dregs of optimism wouldn't last until the summer. Hart's morale at the Democratic Convention in Atlanta that July was back to bleak, albeit thick with self-pity. The Chicago Tribune quoted him saying, All our heroes are dead. John is dead, Bobby is dead, and I'm dead walking dead. In light of all the ups and downs of the 88 Democratic race, perhaps it's no surprise that GOP candidate George H.W. Bush would go on to defeat Democrat Michael Dukakis for the presidency. But even with a new president for the nation and press to fixate upon, one lingering piece of the Donna Rice scandal would smolder on. In 1990, 
A claim surfaced from George H.W. Bush's former campaign manager, Lee Atwater. Facing a brain tumor that spring, the dying political consultant confided in Gary Hart's former media consultant that he, quote, fixed Hart. Allegedly, Atwater had directed Bill Broadhurst to invite Hart to the monkey business yacht party and subsequent charter to Bimini and ensured there would be no lack of beautiful women surrounding Hart. It seemed Atwater set little traps everywhere, hoping one would eventually catch Hart. While the possibility of foul play by Lee Atwater briefly piqued interest in Washington, they didn't change the unfortunate outcome. And Gary Hart himself seemed intent to move on and make good on some of the promises he'd hinted at in 1988. He not only returned to private practice, but found himself a Washington-adjacent role in the Clinton administration. Allegedly, throughout the 1990s, Hart served as an unofficial Obi-Wan of sorts. He wrote letters to President Clinton spanning the gamut of topics, mostly in regard to foreign policy. The unofficial aspect of the role, though, hinted that Hart's name still had a bit of a stink to it. At least until 1998, when Clinton officially awarded him a spot on the Commission on National Security in the 21st Century with two other former senators. This role was eventually elevated to a co-chairmanship. During this time, Hart wrote an eerie report in 1999 that predicted a devastating domestic terror attack. Hart's prediction of 9-11 tragically was seen as one of his most notable contributions to American politics. In 2003, Hart did consider running for president once again. This time, he'd be facing the young Bush, George W. When he was pushed to answer why tempt fate for a third time, Hart answered bluntly, quote, there are only two places to be in American life, on the sidelines or on the playing field. But his odds of success were low. As one of Hart's former campaign advisors put it, Hart has become a figure of pity, negativism, victimization, and to some extent, self-indulgence. Not exactly the hopeful image he put forth back in the spring of 1987, when he asked voters to consider the possibility that he wasn't weird. In the end, Hart wisely didn't run in 2004. He never became president. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with scandal number 18, The Eaton Affair, when President Andrew Jackson nearly lost two years of his presidency to wrangling the high society gossip of Washington, D.C. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. 
This episode of Political Scandals was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>